everyone to this episode of the Perfect Par Podcast. In today's episode, I am joined by golf fitness trainer Mike Carroll. Mike, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Carter. Thank you very much for asking me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Of course. So I guess we should start off by uh, you telling everybody a little bit about yourself and what exactly you do. So I am a 30-year-old strength and conditioning coach living in Newport Beach, California. I grew up and did all my schooling in Ireland, which is where all my family still are and where they're all from. I did sport and exercise science in college and kind of one of the pathways that you learn about in there is strength and conditioning. And I I actually knew going into that program that that's what I would like to do afterwards. My older brother was five years ahead of me in school and he actually did the exact same college program in the same university. So I was learning little bits and pieces from him as he was going through it. Um, So always really interested in physical training and different sports, played kind of all the sports that were available in Ireland growing up, including golf. And while I was in college, I started working in a gym as a trainer. I used to go back to my hometown, which was about a 90 minute drive from where I went to college and work there on the weekends. And that was huge for gaining some experience training people and working with different types of clients who had different needs and were interested in different sports and things like that. And towards the end of my college, I was kind of thinking that maybe I would like to work more with golfers because when I was playing golf as a teenager, I was actually in the gym training um, and I could see that it was making a huge difference to my golf game. And I was thinking that that's something I'd like to do with other people. And then when I finished college, I set up working full time in that gym back in Cork called Fitness Works. And shortly afterwards, I decided that I would definitely like to do more with golfers rather than just the kind of everyday personal training client. And I was also working with some other teams and athletes from different sports, but I really thought that I would like to do more with golf. And I also started back playing golf. I didn't play golf at all in college. I was playing a, a sport called Gaelic football. But I once I decided that, I went and did the TPI Level 1 certification. That was in 2014. And that's when I started the kind of brand or name Fit for Golf. And I was working with golfers in person in Ireland. And then in 2016... I got a job opportunity with a place called Hanson Fitness for Golf in Irvine, California. The TPI, which is the Tightest Performance Institute, their Twitter account posted a job listing on Twitter. And I saw it in Ireland and applied for the job and was accepted. And the owner of that gym, Mike Hanson, was kind enough to help me out with the visa process, which is a little bit tedious if you're not a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came over in 2016 and that was kind of my chance then to work full time with golfers and go headfirst into just training people with the, I suppose, main purpose of helping their golf games. When I came over, I wanted to kind of keep going with the fit for golf sort of app and brand. And I already had the social media pages. So I learned about people who were starting to deliver basically online training programs through uh, an app called Trainerize, 
and I created a training app via Trainerize known as the Fit for Golf app. And for the for about four years, I kind of balanced those two jobs working in person as an employee for Hanson Fitness for Golf and gradually building up kind of the, the subscriber number to the Fit for Golf app. And then this year in, uh, sorry, last year in 2021, I went full time with the Fit for Golf app. I left my position in Hanson Fitness for Golf. Uh, I had secured a green card, which meant that I could go out on my own here. And that is what I have been doing since. And I also occasionally travel to PGA Tour events to work with um, some clients that I have there. Yeah, that, that's incredible. Uh, you know, and I've taken a look at some of the stuff you've done and the programs you put together and they're, they're just excellent. So I know you said uh, your brother went through the same college program that you did uh, a little bit before you did, but what really led you to, you know, be interested in training and the overall kinetics of that? We just had a very sporting household growing up. Um, like my dad was in the Navy uh, for 25 years in Ireland and used to train recruits there. And he would have a big sporting background too, particularly in soccer and rugby. My mom is a black belt in karate and my older brother, the same guy that was in the, the college program a few years ahead of me, he was, he was really good at, at soccer, Gaelic football and hurling, Irish sports growing up. So there was just always sports and training going on in our house all the time. And I, I suppose one of the things that probably uh, sparked the interest a little bit is when I went to secondary school in Ireland, which is the same thing as high school here, I started doing some track and field. So cross country running and mm-hmm. track and field. And that was kind of, I suppose, the first time where I was competing in a sport where the result was with, say, a stopwatch. So you had a very clear objective measure for how your performance was changing in the sport, mm-hmm. which, you know, doesn't really happen in field sports because uh, you're in a team and, you know, there's bad bounces and referee calls or whatever. But in something like running, it's just basically the distance and you running it as fast as you can. And that sort of objective measure in running and also kind of your objective measure in golf, I was always interested in, I suppose, kind of cause and effect. Could we train slightly differently and how would it, how would it result in, in different outcomes in the sport? And yeah, just, just gradually then got into um, training in a local gym and I could kind of see quickly that it made a big difference to my performance in some of the different sports that I was involved in. And then when it was time to, to pick a, a college program after high school, uh, it was it was pretty clear that that's what I wanted to do. And that's that's how it started, I suppose. Yeah. So you it, it sounds like you played quite a few sports when you were younger. What led you to, uh, you know, specifically look at golf to train people for and rather than another sport you played? So there's a there, it was just a huge niche. The kind of strength and conditioning slash personal training market is hugely saturated. There's way more supply than there is demand. There's lots and lots of trainers who are struggling to find clients and to find clients, they might have to lower their prices to a level that makes it really hard to make a good living. And there was very, very few people in Ireland at the time. This was in 2014 
or 15 around that time when I decided that I really wanted to do it. There was very, very few people were doing that. Um, I was really passionate about golf and I was really passionate about physical training. And it just seemed like a kind of no brainer to me to try and pursue it a little bit. I, I knew that it could help people a lot and it wasn't really a market that was being tapped into. And once I started it, it kind of got off the ground pretty quickly. I really enjoyed it. It also gave me something you know, pretty uh, intricate to try and learn more about anybody who's, you know, a kind of golf geek or whatever um, will know that there's just so much research and learning that you can do about the biomechanics of the swing, how the body works to produce movement and speed and things like that. And like, I love all that stuff. I could read and talk about that sort of stuff all day. And again, going back to the sort of objective measure, like I loved that you could so simply and accurately measure things like club head speed and ball speed and see how different training activities and training programs impacted these metrics. And that's really what I'm still interested in so much. Like that's that's where kind of most of my, my thinking and programs are, are really trying to, to help people do is, is can we obviously get them swinging better but also also faster. Right. And and you mentioned, you know, TPI was a big part of, uh, you know, helping you learn. And that's just, it's overall been a great program for me. You know, I was recommended uh, probably two or three years ago by my golf coach to give you the TPI screening. And it revealed quite a few things that have helped me to not only structure my golf swing around my uh, physical strengths and limitations, but also just have a better understanding of, how, how the golf swing works kinetically, how big of an impact has TPI had for you? TPI had a really big impact, especially early on. Um, I would have kind of said at the time, and I think this is probably common for people in, in a lot of different lines of work, but I would have thought that I knew quite a bit about the golf swing, I suppose, from playing it and from taking so many lessons from instructors and things like that and mm-hmm. watching tons of videos. But when I went and did the TPI level one certification, kind of realized I was like, well, there's a lot of things they're talking about here that are actually quite simple that I wasn't really thinking about. So it was definitely very good in the level one to learn their screening process. But to be honest, almost more important than the screening process was just listening to them and watching them break down the different movements in the golf swing. I think I I nearly got more out of that and that definitely had an impact then on how I created training programs. Yeah. Well, they were definitely one of the first, you know, organizations to come out around speed training because I think, you know, before Tiger speed training or weight training in general was almost discouraged for golfers. Um, What do you think? Do you, you know, it was right, right around that Tiger time. What do you think, made the transition that people really started to realize, okay, weight training is actually good for golf and not a bad thing. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And it's, it's kind of a a paradox and it's definitely controversial and Tiger is an interesting case because we need to remember that when Tiger came out on tour first, and I I need to check the statistics on this, but I, I think I'm correct is that, when Tiger came out on tour first and he, he wasn't, say, his, his transformed, uh, bigger and stronger physique, he was still exceptionally fast. Right. And it, I think Tiger actually got slower throughout his career from when he came on tour. So even though Tiger got a lot bigger and stronger, 
I don't think he got any faster at all. I think he actually got slower. Now, some of that is likely due to the injuries he picked up. Mm-hmm. And some of that is likely due to the instructors he went to see who were trying to slightly, um, let's say, rein in his swing for maybe more consistency, which often has a slight blunting effect on speed. But because Tiger's physique did change so much and he was clearly the best player in the world by a wide margin, it definitely made people realize like, wow, golfers can be athletes. Like, look at that guy who's better than everyone else. He's also stronger than all of them. So that Mm -hmm. definitely shifted the mindset for sure. Then I think the next big kind of, um, the next big, let's say, domino to fall was Rory like McElroy completely mm-hmm. changed his his physique from when he came out on tour uh, to now and Rory has increased his speed significantly since he came out on tour his first year he was at about 116 miles per hour and last year he was his highest ever he was nearly at 123 which is a massive difference at that level like that's right. enormous um, and then obviously more recently Bryson has has had an even bigger effect than any of those guys. But I think what's also been helpful is that they're sort of the three, I would say, poster boys for it. But we also just have way more of the, let's say, less household names, but still exceptionally good professional golfers. You always hear them talking about it. Any of the guys who are getting a little bit older and maybe transitioning onto the seniors tour, you always hear them talking about how important it is to stay in shape or if they wish they'd been a little bit more diligent to their physical training through the peak of their career. And then definitely any young guys that we see coming out on tour now, they've probably been doing it since they were teenagers. And a lot of them tend to be, you know, absolute monsters off the tee um, relative to what might've been coming out you know, five, 10, 15 years ago, especially the amount of them. It seems that almost anybody who breaks onto the scene now, except for a few notable exceptions like Colin Marikawa, seem to be exceptionally fast. Yeah. Well, and you you just touched on a point with Tiger that I want to bring up, you know, the difference between strength and speed. Functionally in the golf swing, what, what differentiates the two? Or how can they be separated? Well, there's def- it's definitely important to to note that strength mu- muscle strength will have a will have tend to have a very beneficial impact on speed because what stronger muscles can do is produce more force and clubhead speed is an expression of force so if everything else stays the same and a golfer gets significantly stronger he will definitely see an increase in their clubhead speed like absolutely but I think with Tiger, it, there's probably other variables that came into effect that make it difficult and maybe unfair to assess the impact that strength had on his speed because we know he picked up a lot of injuries. There's you know, so much, I suppose, um, information out there, a lot of it conflicting about what caused his injuries and the type of training that he was doing. Like we know from some of the books that have been written about him, he was doing, you know, very long distance running on pavement, wearing, you know, army boots and weighted backpacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think probably the most important thing to remember too, like is that Tiger as exceptional a golfer as he was, I think it's fair to say he probably made some decisions in his training that, that did negatively affect him. You know, maybe, 
maybe too keen and, and too obsessed with maybe getting better or working hard and eventually it caught up with him. But then the flip side of that is if he didn't have that attitude, he wouldn't have achieved as much as he did. So, you know, kind of who, who are we to judge? But in most cases, for sure, if golfers can increase their muscular strength, it will have a massive effect on speed. And to answer your question more directly about what's the difference, well, the difference is time. Without getting too sciency, strength is the maximum force that we can produce in a particular movement with an unlimited amount of time to do so. And a way for people to think about this would be like a, a maximum effort lift in a gym. If they think of like a squat or a bench press or something like this, if you're grinding out as heavy a lift as you can for a single rep, that's going to be your maximum strength level. But the time that it takes for us to develop this maximum this maximum force and, and show off our maximum strength in an exercise like this is much longer than we have to produce force in a very fast movement, like a golf swing or a sprint or a jump or something like that. But we need to remember that these fast movements, like a golf swing or a jump or a sprint or throwing a baseball, they are still expressions of force. So even though we don't have enough time to recruit and produce all of our force, we'll be producing a certain amount of it. And if our strength levels are low and we're recruiting or producing a certain amount of our strength in these uh, high speed movements, we want to be pulling from a high strength level. So if you, a, a way to explain it to people will be that let's just say, for example, in the golf swing, we get to apply 50% of our strength because we don't have enough time to apply all of our strength. We want to be applying 50% of as high a strength level as possible. Does that make sense? Yes. And then, and then kind of with training, what we tend to do is we want to increase that maximum strength level. So we're tapping into a higher peak, basically, because if our strength level goes up, and we're still tapping into 50% of it, that 50% is going to be a higher number. But also with speed training, we can learn how to tap into more than 50%. We might learn how to tap into 52, 57, 60% of that maximum strength. And if we can increase both of those things, our maximum strength level, and then the percentage of that that we're going to tap into, well, then we're going to be in really, really good shape and for, for increased speed. And that's why we try and balance increasing strength with heavy lifting and keeping a lot of frequent speed training in the program. And that 50% number is something that I just made up. Like there's no, mm -hmm. that's, that's not a, like a scientifically proven thing, but it, there is definitely a range. Like we, we can only produce a certain amount of our maximum force quickly. And we want, we want that strength level to be really high. Yeah. So what are some things people can do, you know, if they're training and working out in the gym, what are some things people can do to speed train and make sure as much of that as possible transfers into the golf swing? Yeah, so that's a good question. With people's strength training or their gym training, I don't worry about making it golf specific in terms of the movement pattern at all, really, to be honest about, to be honest with you, because what we're trying to do in the gym is increase somebody's maximum strength. We want to make their muscles stronger. And we want to use exercises that can be uh, progressed in load over time. And if we try and do that with exercises that mimic the golf swing, 
that's very difficult to do. Those exercises don't really respond to heavy loading very well at all. And that makes it very difficult to get a lot stronger. So when we hear sports specific training, people immediately think about exercises that mimic the movement pattern of the golf swing. But what we should be thinking about is a specific adaptation in our body, a specific change to our physical capabilities and specific change that we're looking for is we want our muscles capable of producing more force. So I would tend to do that with very general basic strength exercises, but trying to get progressively stronger in them over time, like a lot stronger things like squats, deadlifts, lunges, or step-ups. Yes, I do some rotational type work with cable machines, uh, some rotary chops and things like that. And then upper body exercises like um, bench presses, rows, lat pull downs, shoulder presses, flies, reverse flies. So all these things that a lot of people will be familiar with in the gym, trying to get as strong as possible in those, usually in about a five to eight rep range, roughly, because that's going to be a nice sweet spot for getting bigger and stronger. But then conversely, we also want to make sure that people are doing enough low weight, high speed exercises. And that would be things like vertical jumps, broad jumps, lateral jumps, medicine ball throws and slams, some very light and fast explosive band work. And then the most specific speed stimulus of all, we want to make sure that people are regularly swinging as fast as they can with speed feedback. Um, and if we can if we can include all of those in our say weekly plan, then there's it's likely to have in in my experience in my opinion more benefit than concentrating on just low weight high speed exercises or just high weight and by nature of them being high weight slower exercises. Yeah. So what's a good ratio people should shoot for between? fast exercises and just um, muscle building that's that's a really good question too and it changes a little bit i would say as people progress in their kind of training careers so at the beginning when somebody is untrained and they've never really done excuse me any specific gym training or speed training just by getting stronger so just by doing their in the gym kind of heavier loading that will also have a huge effect on their speed exercises they'll get much better swing speeds they'll get much better at their jumping and throwing and things like that but after about i would say two years of consistent strength training our gains in strength really really drop off this will be different now for teenagers like you because you guys you know, haven't fully developed yet, but this is for adults I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Adults who are strength training, their their gains in strength, if they're consistently training, it tends to get pretty hard to keep increasing in strength after about two years. At that point, they will definitely have increased their explosive power and speed a lot. And at this point, to continue making uh, gains in speed, there should probably be more of a focus on higher speed exercises. How I set up the ratio in general is that a common way that I would set it up is that three days per week, I like to have people in the gym and in those gym sessions, they do a little bit of mobility work to, as a dynamic warm up. Then they do some light load, high speed exercises like jumps for lower body power and speed 
and medicine ball throwing and slamming for core and upper body power and speed. If they can't throw, throw and slam med balls, I usually get them to use um, some bands to simulate, simulate those movements, ones that they can move very quickly. And then in that session, they'd also be doing a little bit of a heavier loading in terms of strength exercises, usually like maybe two lower body exercises, a trunk or core exercise, and two upper body exercises. That would be three days a week. So in those gym sessions, there's going to be a split between light load, high speed exercises with the jumps, throws, and slams, and then high load. And because they're high load, the speed will be slow strength exercises. But then I also like golfers to have about two days a week or three days a week, if they're really serious, of specific swing speed training, if increasing their speed is one of their goals. And this would usually be about 20 to 40 swings as fast as they can with speed feedback, either using their own driver or one of the popular speed training tools like the stack or speed sticks or something like that. And then what it tends to look like for people is if you imagine a regular week on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they might have their gym programs where they're doing this combination of mobility, power, and heavier strength. And then on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, they'll be doing some form of direct swing speed training for about 20 to 40 swings with speed feedback. So some sort of radar, the PRGR radar that Superspeed Cell is really good for this because it's cheap and portable and is extremely accurate. And that would be Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. So it really works on like an every other day or alternating basis, strength and power one day in the gym and then direct swing speed training the next day. Yeah. So with the direct uh, swing speed training, I'm curious because I've heard conflicting opinions on this. The difference between swinging, uh, you know, say a, one of the speed sticks from Super Speed Golf and your actual driver, have you been able to notice uh, any significant difference in speed buildup by which one you use? Because I've um, talked to a few people who have said using your actual driver and hitting actual golf balls, you know, trains your brain to allow you to swing faster when you're actually hitting. Do you agree with that? So I have absolutely seen numerous, numerous people have huge gains in speed from both approaches. Um, by far the most important thing, like we, we need to, like people need to step back for a second and think like, what are we actually trying to do here with speed training? We're trying to develop the ability to swing faster. If I can track my speed, that's the most important thing, having a device that can track speed. If somebody hasn't really trained speed before, they're a beginner to it, and they just use their own golf clubs and they practice swinging them faster and faster and faster, they will absolutely gain speed. Conversely, if somebody, let's just say, if, sorry, if somebody does the opposite, if they buy one of the speed training tools and they go through, they use those which are slightly heavier, slightly lighter than a driver is the idea and they swing those, they will absolutely get faster too. I definitely, where, where the kind of balance needs to be met then though, is we need to remember that really what we're trying to do with our swing speed is we want to improve our strokes gained off the tee. We, we want to be able to transfer it to a golf swing we can use on the course. So that's why I think it's important that at least some of your training is hitting golf balls with your own club where you can get feedback on the strike and the flight 
Um, I definitely think that in the long term, using some of those tools can be very, very beneficial for people. But I also know for certain that tons and tons of people have gained huge amounts of speed without ever touching them. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I would say what's what's probably useful for people to think about too, like is that not everybody has the ability to hit balls with a golf club at home. They might not have, you know, a net or space right. to do it or whatever. But some of these speed training tools, the fact that you don't hit a golf ball um, and the fact and, and what's also important for some people is the fact that there is no head on it and you're not actually trying to make contact with a golf ball. They're freed up to actually try and swing fast. Some players, maybe like lower skilled players, they're going to have a huge problem with contact at the beginning when they start speed training with their regular clubs and nobody likes consistently miss hitting the ball. So yeah. they're likely then to hold back. So it's kind of a balance, you know, like if you have, let's just say a beginner who's a, a 24 handicap, well, then they're probably going to be better off like swing. I would say direct swing speed training might not be a huge priority for them because by just improving their swing mechanics and hitting the middle of the face more often, their distance is going to go way up. But then if you take, you know, a PGA tour pro who's been playing tour golf for 20 years they can swing as fast as they want and they're still probably going to hit the middle of the face, you right. know? So, so there's, there's definitely a balance there, I would say. Right. Well, I definitely, you know, doing some speed training stuff with an actual club, I'm a scratch to a plus two handicap depending on the day. And I miss hit quite a few. So I think that's probably pretty common, even if you're a scratch player. Yeah. And what we need to remember too, like, is that it's perfectly normal. And I would say is that it is acceptable to miss hit some shots when you're speed training, because we need to remember that we're trying to push the limits of our coordination. We're getting our body to swing at speeds. It's not used to swinging out before. So naturally we're going to be uncoordinated doing that. But the only way that we can get coordinated doing it is by forcing ourselves to do it. So just because you're mishitting, I don't know what your club head speed is. Let's say it's 112 miles an hour on the course on your stock drivers, but you can swing 118 or 119 in your speed training. Of course, that's going to feel a little bit uncomfortable for you, and it's going to be harder to find the middle of the face. But as you do that more and more, you're going to get more coordinated at it. And then what you'll also start find happening is that your max speed starts going from 118, 119 to 120, 122, 123. And now when you dial it back to what feels like your normal on-course speed, that might have jumped up to like 115 or 116. So without even trying to swing faster on the course, because you've gotten way outside your comfort zone in your speed training, that natural cruising speed has also drifted up. Yeah, that makes sense. So, of course, the golf swing, you know, you utilizes so many different muscle groups in the body. But when you're weight training, what is there? Are there certain muscle groups that contribute more to the swing than others? Um, yeah, there, there is. But if we remember the golf swing again, it is definitely like a full body kind of sequential movement. And it's very similar to any other rotational power sports, I would say. So definitely the big muscles in the leg, like the quads are going to be super important because they're the ones that are prim primarily involved in driving our feet down through the ground to get that vertical force. 
So things like squatting and step-ups and lunges, pretty heavy, and things like jumping, they're going to be really good for developing the leg muscles. We're obviously going to be rotating with a lot of force. So the muscles in our trunk, our obliques, and our glutes are really important for rotating our pelvis and our torso. So I like to do things like heavy cable pulley rotations. And then in the upper body, and this is where I think a lot of golfers probably don't focus enough in my experience, we want to be able to swing our arms as hard as possible. And it's our lats, so the big muscles that run down the side at the side of our body under our armpit and wrap around our back called our lats. They're really important for being able to swing our arms faster. So things like lat pull downs and pull ups. Um, and also the muscles in our shoulders and chest. Because if you think of what we're doing with our arms in the downswing, our left arm is, say, on our chest and coming in towards impact, that left arm flies off our chest. So it's almost like a reverse fly. So our upper back and our shoulder on our left side, if we're right-handed golfer, would be really important. And then on our trail arm, on our right arm, well, that arm's starting to come across our body after being, say, open away from our body. So that's almost a little bit like a chest fly. And there's some research that shows that the muscle activation in the right pec is huge in the golf swing. And then also probably not quite as important as the other muscles that I just talked about, but we do get some extension of our arms. So our triceps will be involved. And then we'll definitely be unloading the wrists. So some of the forearm muscles and things like that will be important. But I would say probably the big ones are the legs, especially the quads and glutes, your obliques for turning, and then your shoulders and your lats for swinging the arms as fast as you can. Yeah. So with all this training, you know, it sounds like a lot. And a lot of my listeners are, you know, competitive golfers. And so in the summer, they're playing a ton of golf and, you know, one, sometimes two tournaments a week. How do you, you know, keep your training up at least to a level where you don't lose anything, you know, when you're that busy and playing, you know, 18 to 36 holes a day? Yeah. Again, excellent question. And that is something that is really common with competitive players. So what's nice to know, and most people probably don't really realize this is that it's extremely, so once we get past, say, the beginner stage of training, once we've been training for maybe a year, six months or a year, progress starts to slow down a little bit, especially when we get to year two, I would say. But while progress might be very difficult, maintenance is exceptionally easy. So even if you only have somebody do one strength training session per week, they'll be able to maintain pretty much all of their strength and power and muscle mass. And that's really nice for when you're in a very busy competitive period, because even if you can find maybe like 40 minutes once a week, um, you'll be able to keep up those strength and power levels. And that's a huge mistake kind of that I think happens even on the PGA tour is that players do a good off season of training but their off season is quite short. So they don't have enough time to build up a lot of strength, but then they might've say three or four tournaments in a row, have like a week break and then another three tournaments in a row. And they don't really train at all the weeks of the tournaments. So now they've gone about eight weeks without really training and they're just going backwards. Whereas if you can get people to train even once or twice a week for like 30, 40 minutes, they can still really, really stay on top of their strength and power and muscle mass 
And that makes a huge difference over the course of the season, because obviously we don't want to be getting weaker as the season is going on and losing speed and power and, you know, not feeling as energetic and things like that. Right. And going along with that same topic a little bit. So for golfers like myself who play junior golf, which is about 50% of my audience, you know, we're playing a lot, but we're also walking a lot. Um, You know, if you're in the Southeast, like I am, it's hot. How do you condition your body to where you can play, you know, four, five, 18 hole rounds of walking in 90 degree weather in the summer? How can you condition your body to be able on that fourth or fifth day, still be good enough to perform, whether it be with speed or just overall making it through the tournament? So the first thing is you, you have to be doing it. You have to be used to it. Like if you take a kid who hasn't done that for, you know, all summer and you try and get them to do it versus kids who are doing that for weeks and weeks in a row, they're going to really struggle. Like our, our body adapts to the stress that we put on it. So you will get better at that from doing it more often. Um, obviously we can't simulate, you know, four 18 hole rounds walking in 90 degree weather with a 45 minute or one hour gym session. But getting in better physical condition will definitely help. Probably not as big an issue for teenagers, but with adult golfers, simply carrying too much body fat is something that really, really hinders them when they're playing a lot of golf in a row. And then things, so, so kind of to answer your question more directly, you have to be doing it. You need to be used to it. There's no other way to kind of get into that, that rhythm and routine. Even the mental demands of it, you know, trying to keep your emotion under control so that you're not burning out and fraying yourself mentally. And then a couple of other things that are super important are going to be sleep. Sleep is by far and away the most underutilized recovery tool and I would say performance enhancer that's free and available to all of us. Uh, nutrition and hydration. So if you're playing in exceptionally hot weather, it's going to be very important to make sure that you're taking in enough fluids and also enough electrolytes. Water won't be enough if you're playing, if you're out in the heat, you know, if you're playing a five hour round and you're practicing beforehand for an hour, like you're going to be sweating a lot. So making sure that you're getting some, a lot of fluids, but that there's electrolytes in them to replace your lost salts. Because when we sweat, we don't just lose water. We also lose a lot of salt. Um, so if you don't want electrolytes, snacks that have salt in them are naturally have electrolytes in them. So some fruit and things like that do. And then some salty snacks can help. Um, and then your nutrition both away from the course and on the course will be really important. So kind of simply there, you you need to make sure that you're doing it regularly. You need to make sure that you're sleeping well. You need to make sure that you're getting your electrolytes and water in your nutrition on the course and off the course needs to be right. And then you will definitely get some help too from your general physical training program, which has your muscles better conditioned, your heart and lungs better conditioned, and you just a, a better conditioned person basically. Yeah. So, you know, going along with the recovery, Uh, aspect of everything how do you think stretching you know affects recovery and overall flexibility affects your golf swing Uh, so stretching doesn't affect recovery it doesn't help at all a lot it's a lot of people think it does um but it stretching does nothing to help muscles recover from intense exercise i would say you'd be better off you'd be just as well off doing something like having a hot shower going for a walk 
maybe even doing like a really light mini workout, you're going to get much more benefit from making sure that you have enough and the right type of food and water and sleep. In terms of it, uh, it's helped with mobility. I don't prescribe any regular static stretching at all. Um, all of the all of the mobility work that I prescribe is dynamic. So it's people moving through ranges of motion. And another point on that is that people have been told for a long time that strength training reduces flexibility and mobility, which is actually not true. The opposite is the case. Um, so if people are doing, I would say, good quality resistance training programs, their, their range of motion, their flexibility should be improving. Um, and I, I, al- I always put some mobility work at the start of workouts, which functions as a warm-up also. So if somebody is wants to do some like mobility work or stretching, I would say that there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's definitely a good idea before rounds to make sure you're loosened out and, and ready to, to, you're getting prepared to perform again. But stretching on its own is going to do nothing for recovery. Okay. So, uh, you know, just sticking on the recovery because it's, it's a big part of especially me in the summer and a lot of uh, yeah. my peers. It's, uh, you know, are there any tools you recommend? Like, you know, there's Theragun out there. There's, you know, the compression boots, anything you would really recommend? No, n- not at all, to be honest, okay. be- because I think that those things are going to be so minor compared to the big rocks. Like, like it's funny, you asked about um, recovery there. and Probably the best way to recover faster is be in better shape. So make sure that you're going into the season in really good physical condition. Make sure that you maintain your physical condition through the season, even though it might be hard, even though there's days where you probably feel like you don't want to do your workout. I think everybody has, you know, 30 minutes twice a week or something like that. And then definitely make sure that you're like improving your sleep, improving your nutrition, improving your hydration, making sure that you're in good physical condition and learning how to de-stress. So obviously we get you know, heightened emotions from tournaments. We can be really mad if we don't play well. We can be very mentally fatigued, you know, from grinding all day, you know, over decisions, you know, what club to hit, what shot to play, you know, bad breaks, etc. So learning how to switch off and de-stress with whatever you like to do are going to be infinitely more valuable than any of those recovery tools you see marketed. Yeah, myth-busting the industry. <laughs> Well, it's, it's not that there might not be any benefit from them, but they just can't compare to the benefits of the points I just went through there. Right. It's right. completely putting the cart before the horse. It would be like, it would be like taking a beginner golfer and, you know, trying to get them, let's say, you know, very intricately club fitted for some perfect set of clubs with, you know, the shafts exactly as they need the loft and lie, but the person hasn't learned how to grip the club. They haven't learned how to stand to the ball. They don't right. understand how the club is supposed to make contact with the ball. They don't know the difference between a seven iron and a sand wedge. Like that's right. kind of what you're, it's, that's kind of the analogy I would use there, you know? Yeah. Makes sense. So as I mentioned earlier, about 50% of my audience are between the ages of 13 and 17. How does weight training and overall speed training, uh, you know, change for them or does it at all? So the younger the the golfer or the athlete, 
the more emphasis I would put on speed and the less emphasis I would put on strength. The reason being is that puberty is the best strength enhancer that we ever get. So, and it's also easier to develop speed the younger we are. So I would definitely encourage people who are like, it's hard because you'll know better than me from being around teenagers at different ages. Everybody matures at different rates. So you can't say it's, oh, 12 year olds should do this and 14 year olds should do this because one 14 year old, you know, might be less developed than a 12 year old. But I would say definitely junior golfers get accustomed to swinging as fast as they can with speed feedback, have contests against yourself, have contests against your friends, see how high you can get your swing speed and ball speed up. Um, A nice thing that I recommend for kids when they're doing that is do it with um, some foot spray on the face of the driver. So they're kind of combining trying to get faster with also trying to hit it more out of the middle of the face. I think if you can do that, your driving is probably going to be fairly good. Um, But there's also definitely benefits to adding in some basic strength training. So for kids, it's usually easiest to just start with body weight stuff like squats and split squats and lunges, things like sit-ups, different types of planks, pull-ups, push-ups, and even things like sprinting, jumping. And then if you think sprinting, jumping, and I was going to say like hitting as many different types of balls with as many different rackets and sticks as you can, just messing around if like if if you don't play other sports because you don't have time to commit to them don't be afraid to do them in your in your downtime as physical development and and coordination development um and then as kids get older and when they've kind of gone through puberty that's when they'll have really really strong effects to strength training um and that's when i i start taking that a little bit more seriously um so that is how I would explain it. The younger the, the kid and the less developed they are, the more I'd focus on like speed, coordination. And then I'd keep doing that definitely. And I would do a tiny bit of strength if they were interested, but I'd probably try and make their strength like games and stuff like that. I wouldn't have a structured gym program or anything like that. Um, and then as they progress through their teenage years, um, I'd start introducing some more formal strength training. And to be honest, I think that type of approach is why in time to come, basically everyone playing D1 college golf is just going to be a bomber, I think, because, because yeah. people, people understand how to, or people understand now that it's really important. They get kids thinking about it, doing it earlier. They're, they're learning golf with the idea of smashing it. They're going to be training to support it. And I think we'll just see like so many kids swinging 120 miles an hour, like at like 18, to be honest, in yeah. time to come. Well, and we're definitely, you know, starting to see, see the stuff with that now. And, you know, be me being in the college golf recruitment process, such a big uh, influence for coaches is swing speed. You know, the higher your swing speed is, the more the more coaches are going to look at you. It's, it's so important in the game now. Yeah, like it's... Yeah, like it's definitely a big advantage. It's not obviously the only the only thing, but it's True. it's something. It's it's just going to be one of those things that if if you're not say at least if you're not average speed for the level that you're trying to play at, 
well, then you need to be better than average at something else to make up. And that gets hard when you get to higher levels of golf because most people are pretty skilled at everything. Right. So I would say you at least want to make sure that you're holding your own on speed so that you don't need to be exceptional somewhere else to even just hang on. But if you can get a little bit better at speed while getting a little bit better at you know your skill, that's obviously going to be great. But there's there's a trade-off. Like it's It's no good being able to swing 125 miles an hour, not being able to find the golf course, and you know maybe really struggling with other areas of your game. But likewise, you're also going to really struggle if you're really skillful, but you're swinging 108 miles an hour. Right, right, definitely. Uh, So I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on what Bryson is doing, because I've talked to a few people in the golf fitness space, and a few of them say it's great and he's seen great results. And a few of them are saying, you know, it's great for now, but his career is going to severely drop off in the next five years. What do you overall think about what he's doing? Um, well, I think I think the, the easiest reply to that is his US Open victory by six strokes is, is probably a, a good place to start, you know, which would not have been possible without what he did in terms of completely transforming how far he hit the golf ball. I think he's gained about 20 yards in the last two or three seasons um, on his average, which is crazy for a PGA Tour professional. Um, I think it's worth noting that Bryson has exhausted what I say are the kind of four key elements to think about when trying to increase your speed or distance. So number one is intent. He increased some of his speed increase was simply by deciding he's going to swing faster and hit the ball harder. Most people hold back a lot because they either don't have the confidence to swing harder or because they've been told that it's not a good idea. Number two is technique and biomechanics. He's basically lived in Chris Como, who's one of the best golf instructors in the world and has a biomechanics lab in his living room. That's where the vast majority of his practice has been. So he's not just doing this on the driving range on his own, hoping for the best. Everything he's doing is being measured by Gears 3D and GASP force plates with an expert on these systems who can basically measure what's going on, assess it. And if things are going down a path they don't like, they can scale it back. Number three is is physical enhancement. He's obviously gotten enormously stronger. There was a lot talked about how much weight he gained, like 50, 60 pounds or something like that, I think, Mm -hmm. from his normal to his heaviest. But he's lost, I would say, probably about half of that. He's way lighter than he was at one point shortly after the lockdown. Like he's he has massively trimmed down. He's still much bigger than he was, mm-hmm. but he's nowhere near as heavy as he was at his heaviest. Um, so I think too much is made of the weight gain, not enough made of the strength gain and the complete overhaul of his golf swing. It's nothing like it was before the transformation. And then the fourth one is equipment. Like he's really, really tinkered and um, experimented with, you know, different head lofts, different shafts, stiffnesses, lengths, weights, all these types of things, like with a team of, you know, exceptionally intelligent engineers. So he's, he's also by far number one on the PGA Tour in strokes gained off the tee. So Bryson is over one shot better than the field average per round in strokes gained off the tee. 
So what that means is that the average driver on the PGA Tour, with all else being equal, they're starting one shot behind Bryson at the start of every day, which is massive. Like that's huge. Yeah. huge so four, like it's about i think he's like 1.1 or something close to 1.1 strokes gained versus the pga tour average off the tee so over a four round event that's four and a half strokes that the average driver on the pga tour is given up to brayson so they'd now need to find somewhere to catch him or he needs to give it back somewhere else we know he's a really good putter because he's also used a similar i would say method and mindset to dig into how to get better at putting What's not as good is his approach play. But I think for professional golfers, distance control has to be one of the easiest things to get better at because it's not like they mishit the ball. It's just a matter of basically speed control and launch control. So if Bryson improves his, uh, I would say, shorter irons, it's going to be really interesting to see how good he can get. My main concern is not injury. He might get injured. That's not what I'm concerned about. My main concern is that Bryson, my main concern in terms of him being like an absolute star for years to come, I think he might have other interests that start distracting him from being as good a golfer as he can be. I think he might get more interested in long drive and training for that and maybe not as interested in tour golf. It looks like he's super interested in YouTube and TikTok and social media stuff. So I think he's a lot more things going on outside of getting as good as he can at tour golf than others. And who knows how long he wants to keep going playing golf for. Like all these guys are making so much money that they could retire at 30 and say, you know what, I'm going to do something else with my life. So who knows? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Well, uh, I think we've covered some excellent information in this episode. Uh, Where can people find out more about you? So I'm quite active on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. The handles are fit underscore four for underscore golf and my website is www.fitforgolf.blog awesome well thank you again for joining me today my pleasure carter thank you very much i hope people enjoy it and if they have any questions uh, they can feel free to reach out